Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. I'm going to read for us beginning in verse 7. Romans chapter 13, verse 7. The Word of God here says, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Let's pray again for the word of God. Well, Father, our prayer is that you would honor us today by honoring your word among us so that you yourself would be honored by your church. And Father, as we look at this great commandment to love each other, Father, I pray that in this commandment we would, in our hearts, just as John Owen has been teaching us in his book, that we would rise to a level of joy in our hearts as we love one another, seeing that joy is the pinnacle of love and worship. Please stir our hearts up to love each other as your scriptures call us to. Please exalt yourself in this place. Please bless me and bless hearer alike and just have mercy on your church today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We may be seated. Well, <clears throat> I've had the opportunity to preach several times over the last month, and there seems to be a, a recurring theme uh, taking place through the text that I've been selecting, and the recurring theme seems to be the kingship of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ as king. Uh, the first sermon that kind of uh, kicked this off really was when we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 9, and we, we looked at the kingship of Jesus Christ uh, from a typological viewpoint through the kingship of King David. Next, we looked at the king and his arrival and the king and his proclamation as king over God's people when we looked at Matthew chapter 21 a couple weeks ago and looked at the triumphal entry where Jesus Christ declares his kingship over Israel. But today we find ourselves in Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. We're definitely in the practical section of the book of Romans, meaning that Paul is now turning to discuss uh, the calling for justified believers in Christ. What is their calling in this life and how it is that they submit themselves to the king who saved them? We're in this section where the apostle Paul is describing to justified believers how they are to act and how they are to be obedient to Jesus Christ, the king. And Today we're going to, we're going to consider uh, one aspect or one feature of our submission to King Jesus, and this is a submission to his command that we love one another. We're going to look at this aspect of love, two aspects 
is really what the scripture here expounds upon as we look at love. First, we're going to look at the command to love. We're going to note the command. And then secondly, we're going to look at the theological significance of love, the theological significance of what it means to love. Um, So first, the command to love. Um, I read verse 7 in the reading of our text just to um, kind of acknowledge the context that we find our, ourselves in today. Verse 7 said again, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Now, if you're familiar with Romans chapter 13, and I hope that you are, uh, the Apostle Paul has been, di- been discussing the necessity for Christians to subject themselves to the governing authorities, even to the secular governing authorities. Now, as you can imagine, that's a teaching that was no less difficult to uh, submit to and to hear uh, back then as it is now. Um, Dealing with secular governments, um, it, it can be difficult, it can be hard, it can be a struggle, but as imperfect as human governments are, In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, the Apostle Paul tells us that they are, in fact, established by God himself. Even these governments are established by God himself. They're there, he tells us, to provide a a necessary function, to praise righteousness and to suppress evil. Um, Governments, even secular governments, are there preventing anarchy, which is something that no Christian should desire. And we are to submit to them. We're to submit to our governments through uh, the things that Paul listed here, such as paying of taxes. We're to, we're to pay our taxes and we're to honor them and honor their demands. All up into a point, of course. All up into a point, uh, a point where they attempt to put us maybe in an Acts 5.29 situation where they require us to, to sin against God. And at that point, we must... Um, honor a higher law, a higher law than the civil governments, and at that point we would have to obey God rather than man. Um, that situation definitely um, can occur. But what we're seeing is really a submission then to a hierarchy of laws. Um, it, it's very similar to the very common um, hierarchy of laws that, for instance, wives um, have to submit themselves to as they submit themselves to their husbands. In the same way, they're to submit in all things, of course, with an exception, up until the point that a husband requires a wife to sin. Um, At that point, the wife has all the right in the world and the duty, I would say, to question her husband um, about what he's requiring her to do. And it's funny in a sense that um, in Sunday school, I had this phrase in my notes, Christianity is religion of submission, word for word. And I wondered, is that one of those overarching statements that preachers make that's over the top, but I'm glad Emilio said the exact same thing in Sunday school, so I feel better about saying it, but it's true. Christianity is a religion of submission, Um, the submission ultimately being modeled for us by Jesus Christ himself as he submitted fully to the Father. And so we, like Christ, are to submit in many different facets of our life um, because God cares about them all. God doesn't only care about submission in the house. He doesn't only care about submission within the church. He even cares about submission to the civil governments. 
all of these aspects of submission actually can affect the gospel that we're attempting to uh, communicate to others. Um, if we don't submit rightly, it can dis distort the gospel message that we're to presenting that they need to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul then, um, in this teaching, has, has really simply been expounding upon the essence of what Jesus had already taught in Mark chapter 12, where he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God to the things that are God's. Um, that's really what the Apostle Paul has been expounding upon. And so this has been the, the, the more narrow context uh, of calling us to honor secular governing authorities. That's what Paul's been talking about already up to this point in Romans chapter 13. But now he's making a transition in our text. He's making a transition into calling us to a more general, uh, a wider scope of honoring all people, of honoring and even loving all people in verse 8. Because that's where he said, Owe nothing to anyone except, except to love one another. Now, I'm going to have to take a moment to put a qualifier on that first clause there. Owe nothing to anyone. Because every faithful, respected pastor that I listened to that preached this text took the time to qualify it. So I'm just going to submit myself to their wisdom and, and see that, uh, that there must be wisdom in it because obviously that phrase where it says, owe nothing to anyone, that phrase has actually led some to believe that any sort of debt, any sort of loan is being um, deemed as uh, not acceptable for the Christian. Some have taken that clause to mean that. Even people like uh, Hudson Taylor, George Mueller, um, these guys never took loans based on this text. Um, Charles Spurgeon even apparently had a similar type of view based on this text. But I don't think just because a few good brothers are a little overzealous, it doesn't mean that's what God is actually restricting here in this text. And I just want to take a moment to prove it to you, um, mostly for the reason that I don't want anybody to be pulling their phones out and checking their Wells Fargo accounts, worrying over their mortgage because I want us to pay attention to the rest of the text. So let me just show you why I don't believe this is a wholesale restriction against any type of borrowing or any type of loans. And the reason I don't think that it is is because the Bible in many places speaks of borrowing and lending actually in a positive light, in a good light. So I don't believe this is a wholesale restriction. Let me just quickly read through a couple of these texts that I have to put you at ease. For instance, Psalm chapter 37, verse 25 says, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long he, that's the righteous man, is gracious and lends. All day long the righteous man is gracious and lends. The word for lends there, lavah in the Hebrew, is definitely speaking of making a loan, expecting it to be paid back. So this is an aspect of the righteous man. Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 7 says, If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns, in your land, which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him, and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need, in whatever he lacks. 
same word being used there. It's definitely meaning to lend money and even expecting it to be paid back. But even in that Deuteronomy text, notice a couple things just about lending and borrowing. Um, there, it's very explicitly uh, denoting the need to lend for somebody who needs, not for somebody necessarily who just wants. If somebody wants a, a Lamborghini, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's not sinful that they go and take out a loan to get a Lamborghini. And based on the Deuteronomy text, I don't think that I'm bound to lend him money if he wants to go get a, a Lamborghini. So Brother Scott, quit asking me for the money to get <laughs> the Lamborghini. Um, I'll use this means to deny you that. Um, what about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 42? It says, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Borrow, borrow from you. Luke 6.35, listen to what Jesus says here. But love your enemies and do good and lend. There's actually many other texts that speak of borrowing and lending and um, owing people in that sense. I'm in a positive light. So I just wanted to simply put you at ease and, and let you know that there is a borrowing and there is a lending that is okay in the scriptures. And so I say all that just to say that this prohibition in our text, not to, know, not to owe anyone anything, um, then is a prohibition not to pay back your loans. Nothing wrong with, if necessary, to take a loan, but you must pay them back. Um, because Psalm 37 says the, the wicked borrows and does not pay back. And we know that the scripture has much to say as well, just many warnings in the Bible um, concerning the dangers of borrowing, you know that Proverbs 22, 7 says that the, the borrower becomes the lender's slave. Um, so borrowing, of course, is not the ideal. Um, so if you need to borrow, borrow wisely and borrow strictly for needs, not once. That will keep you out of trouble. But, so now back to our text in verse 8. Hopefully you're okay with that now. But I want to focus in here on this exception this exception to not owing anyone anything. Because Paul says, owe nothing to anyone except, except one thing that you should owe people, except to love one another. That's the command for our consideration today, the great exception, the only thing that you are to owe people. It's the debt that you will never fully pay off. It's the debt of love. We will forever have this debt. Maybe first let me address why we have this debt. Why do, we, why do we owe people love? Well, we have this debt because of a different transaction, another transaction that occurred. Um, you yourself, if you're a believer here, were actually bought with a price. You were purchased, you were redeemed, you were saved by God for a purpose. And just as the text that we all know in Ephesians chapter 10 um, you, were, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. You were bought for a reason, to do things for God, for his glory. And loving other people is just one of the many things that you were purchased for. You were purchased for good, good works and to love other people. And it's because he has saved you that you will forever owe this, what I'm referring to as a debt of gratitude to God. Um, what you pay back to him, as we've been learning in our men's fellowship, nothing you give back to God will ever add a single thing to him. It will not merit you uh, justification, but you owe him nonetheless. 
And it should be a debt of gratitude that you are joyfully wanting to pay back to your good master. Um, it's a debt of gratitude that we should always desire to pay him through loving his creatures, uh, creatures that are likewise created in his, in his image. By loving his creatures, you're loving him. Jesus said, for what you do to the least of these, you do to me. It's the same, the same principle carries out here. Um, but in our, te- in our text here in verse 8, to love one another, I want us actually to, to grasp the weight and, and the, the breadth and magnitude of, of who Paul is describing to us that are to be the objects, who, who are to be the recipients of this love that we're to have. Because the verse says to love one another. And that's very interesting uh, language that Paul is using here for the point that I think he's actually making because just as love is the great exception to the owing of debts, that's what we just saw, that love is the one exception to the owing of people debts, so the loving of one another in this text right here is the great exception to how the Apostle Paul uses this word or these words, one another. When he says love one another, he normally is referring to something else. Um, these words one another, or that one Greek word, alelus, is normally referring to the one another's that a Christian is to give to another Christian. That's, hence the one another's of Scripture. You're to love one another. Everything that we looked at in Sunday school, that's normally how the Apostle Paul um, uses this language. But here, and apparently only here in all of Paul's writings in Scripture, this use of one another Uh, refers to the love that we're to actually have for everyone. It's very interesting, I think, that Paul speaks like this. So what leads me to the conclusion that this is the exception? What would make me think that this is the exception and that Paul's actually calling us to a much broader um, application of this text? Well, just look at the first part of verse 8. The previous clause says, Owe nothing to anyone. See, owe nothing to anyone. This was certainly being used in the most general way possible. The Apostle Paul had just been speaking of how we're to honor and, 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 and pay our debts um, to the secular governments, which certainly wouldn't have been restricted to just Christian uh, governing authorities. Um, so the, just the flow of Paul's thought here in the context is a much more general um, love to all. Take it a step further in verse 8. Look at the language that Paul uses at the end here of verse 8 because he says there, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Who is our neighbor according to Jesus? Well, Jesus gives us a a thorough explanation of that through the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, in Luke chapter 10. For time's sake, I'm not going to read it. I'm assuming that most of you know that parable, but... What Jesus is teaching there, one aspect of what he's teaching is that your neighbor, the person who you should love and take care of, is whoever comes across your path. Your neighbor is is whoever crosses your path, and you should love them. Jesus takes it even a step farther than that, um, to leave no confusion as to who you are to love. Um, He says this in Luke chapter 6, verse 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. 
Wow. And so for the Christian, love is to be a distinguishing characteristic of us. It's to be a, a distinguishing characteristic of Christianity, a love actually for all. A love for all. And so this text, I think that the Apostle Paul is using this language, but he's, he's emphasizing the breadth and the wideness of this love. And so because that's what, where Paul is going with this, this wideness of love, I want us for same, at the same time to recognize something else that the Apostle Paul calls us to, which is actually to recognize a specificity that Paul commands at the very same time that Christians have. Um, if you want to turn to, to Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 to see this, um, the Apostle Paul, at the same time that we're supposed to love everyone, he also commands that we specify our love and have a special love for a certain few out of the whole of humanity. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. It says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. See, that's what we've been saying. It's a very general love here that we're supposed to have for all people. But notice what Paul goes on to say. And especially, and especially those who are of the household of the faith. There's a special love that we're to have for the household of the faith. Of the faith. There's, a, there's a prioritizing then in your heart and in your actions and in the working out of your love. There's a priority that you're to give to the household of the faith a priority that you're to give to the church. Um, we didn't line this up with Sunday school, but as Sunday school was going on, I'm just, this is everything that my sermon is saying. We're to have a love for the church, a, a love for the church that uh, is, is, a, is, a, is a desire for purity for the church. That's how you can love the church. You can desire its purity in everything that we, we talked about in, in Sunday school. But isn't that interesting that the Bible calls us to have a, a special love, a special love for the household of the faith, the church. It shouldn't surprise us, really, um, if you think about it, because God has a special love for the church as well. God does have a special love for the household of the faith, and, and having a differentiation in your love um, should not be a, a foreign concept to us, um, just as um, what's the classic example that we have a special love for our wives that we don't have for every other woman in the church? And that special love that we have for our wife is good, and that's right. And in the same way, God, and so we should have a special love for the church. We're to have a reserved love, a particular love, a love that takes priority over all, over, all, all other loves that we have for other people, really. Um, the New Testament is filled with these instructions on how we're to love the church in particular. But because Paul is using the same language uh, to speak of how we're then to love everyone, I thought we would just look at um, some of the examples given to us of how we're to love the church and maybe how that kind of love can actually overflow and spill over into this world and to even unbelievers. Um, if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, I just tried to find the most condensed presentation of some of these one another's that Paul gives to us in the Word of God. And Ephesians chapter 4 was a good place that I found for these. Ephesians chapter 4, just beginning in the very first verse, is where I picked up to see some of these one another's. 
But Ephesians chapter 4, beginning of verse 1, is going to say that we need to have a unifying love. A unifying love. It says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see the priority that the Apostle Paul gives to unity, to a love that will bring about unity, and in the same way you for the church need to have a, an overarching desire, to, desire that you help maintain the unity of this church. That's the most loving thing you can do for our church is maintain the unity and help us in that. But how does that spill over into the world? How does that idea of unity, because we don't have much unity with unbelievers, but in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, Paul still says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. As much as you possibly can, attempt to live at, live at peace and have um, some sort of unity and civility with even unbelievers. It, that is a way that you can love them and not be an unnecessary, unnecessarily um, unneeded stumbling block for them. What about in Ephesians chapter 4 again? We're to have a teaching love, a doctrinal love. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. It says that he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. For what? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. See, we teach others so they will teach others. Because people need to know more about Jesus Christ and about his word. How does that spill over? Unbelievers, you need to teach unbelievers about God. You need to teach. That is, a, that is the most loving thing you can do to an unbeliever is to teach them about Jesus Christ and what he's done. That even, even teaching can spill over to evan, uh, unbelievers through evangelism, for instance. This is a big one, I think. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse four, uh, 15 says that we are to speak the truth in love. That's how we love one another, by speaking the truth. Um, it says it, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Um, I, I say that's significant because I think it's significant to Paul because he actually repeats it again. Look in verse 25. Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. See the, the importance of speaking the truth to one another? I know that can be hard. I know sometimes we don't want to hear the truth ourselves, but sometimes the truth is what needs to be said, um, and that is the loving thing to do. And so Paul knows that, and he's, he's telling the church here in Ephesus to make sure that they do that because true love can include not only teaching, not only encouragement, but it can also encourage rebuke and correction and exhortation and these sorts of things. And that is true love. Um, we are the body of Christ. Just like with your body, you don't ignore the problems that your body has. 
If your body has a, a problem, you want to love your body, you want to take care of your body, you address the problem uh, the best way you know how. So in the body of Christ, we need to love the body of Christ and address any problems that are there and tend to them and lovingly try to heal the problem. This, this language of speak the truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, our text Um, back in Romans, is actually going to go on to use just that language, if you remember it, where it said, um, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, that great commandment, loving your neighbor. In the same way, we love our neighbor by speaking truth to them, by speaking truth to them. And I, I just want to look really quickly at a reference. I want you to turn to Leviticus chapter 19, because this, this phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is a quote from Leviticus chapter 19. It's actually a very, seemingly very obscure reference if you're reading through your Old Testament that Jesus Christ would quote this as being one of the greatest commandments that you should love your neighbor as yourself. But there it is, and only here in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 where it says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. And here it is. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, there's a reason that people these days seem to misunderstand the doctrine of love. Many people have a misunderstanding of love. That's why we had a whole conference called the Truth and Love Conference was to help explain to people what is true love and Speaking the truth to people is an aspect of true love. Because when we go to do evangelism or we preach to people, right, what's always the common objection? You guys just be more loving to people, right? You guys are just, just preaching to people, but you need to be more loving. Well, what we're doing is the most loving thing you can do, is to speak the truth to these people and let them know their actual condition before God and and point them to the Savior, but it's very interesting that they'll always quote this, just love your neighbor as yourself, or just love people, but notice the verse 17, right before Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17, the very context that Jesus quotes from, he says, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart, notice the next phrase, you may surely reprove your neighbor, You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur incur sin because of him. What that's saying is, it's a command, you should surely reprove your neighbor. If your neighbor is in sin, you are to uh, rebuke them, is another word you could use for that. You are surely to rebuke your neighbor. In that second phrase, although it's hard to understand in the NASB, I'm actually going to quote you the, the NIV that says, so that you will not share in his guilt. See, that's how you love people. You show them their error and lovingly try to to show them error so that they will not, and so that you will not incur guilt from God for being afraid maybe to confront the issue or whatever. But this is a loving way that you can love the church and love even unbelievers. Now, obviously, I know that unbelievers um, won't appreciate and don't seem to appreciate a true biblical love. Um, but what they will notice when you love them by speaking the truth to them is they will see a distinctiveness between the love that a Christian has and the love that their friends have who just want to ignore problems and, and 
and try to seemingly ignore reality is what it ends up being. Um, I just experienced one example of this recently at my work where a new operator was hired at my work. First day I met the guy, he said, hey, I hear you're a Christian. I hear you're, I hear you're a preacher. I said, yeah, yeah, I am. He said, uh, he said tell me, wh- where, where am I going to go if I don't become a Christian and I don't repent? Where am I going to go? And I said, well, if you don't repent, you're going to go to hell. You're going to go to hell for sinning against God. And he said, good. I'm glad that you believe the Bible, and I'm glad that you're not afraid to say the truth like most professing Christians are. I, I appreciated that, but he understood. That was his test. Will you speak the truth to me or not? I passed the test, right? <laughs> I passed the test, and I'm not fired yet, so we're going to keep going. But, but, but I could just, this is what came to mind. He saw the distinctiveness between somebody who was willing to speak the truth to him in love. Hopefully, I did it lovingly, but that is the truth, and he needs to hear it. He needs to see his need for Jesus Christ, and the reality is that Hell is a, is a great need to avoid. You, uh, back in Ephesians chapter 4, then, it, I should have told you to stick your finger there. It's okay. I'll just read this one to you. We're to have a forgiving love for one another, a forgiving love, because in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Forgiveness. Forgiveness should mark the Christian as well. Because without forgiveness, there is no Christianity, literally. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 15, If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Uh, this love uh, is non negotiable. The love that we're to have for others to forgive. Um, if Stephen, while being stoned by unbelievers, could pray to God, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, um, we, in the likewise, can forgive even unbelievers when they sin against us. So all of this, everything that we're looking at is, is, is a big truth that the Apostle Paul is calling us to. Um, he's calling us to expand and to, to overflow this love that we have um, to everyone, friend and foe alike. That's the command to love. Um, So addressing, having already addressed the command then um, to love, we've even looked at the recipients of who our love is to be for, everyone in this context. Paul actually goes further. He goes on further than to simply give the command, but now he's actually going to give to us and explain to us the theological significance of obeying the command to love. So let's look at that now. What's the, what's the theological significance of love? Picking back up in the second part of verse 8, Paul says, For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it's summed up in the saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now that's very significant language that Paul is attributing here to love. He's saying it's a fulfillment of the law. He actually says it twice. Love fulfills the law in these three verses right here. But 
Let's first address which law we're looking at here. Which, what law does it fulfill? What law, by loving your neighbor, which law exactly are you fulfilling? Well, if you have an NASB Bible, um, you're going to notice that verse 9 has capitalized words. And those capitalized words are, are letting you know that, that Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. And so in verse 9, these laws that he's quoting, I'm assuming you know, anybody with an ESV loves the Word of God even, and so they probably know already. They don't need the capital letters. But these are selected laws from the second half of the Decalogue, from the second half of the Ten Commandments. And the second half of the Ten Commandments are, are laws, moral laws, dedicated to how we relate to one another. And the, the first four, the first table of the law is how you relate to God. And for those who are interested, um, the Apostle Paul here, in quoting these laws, is actually quoting from the Septuagint, from the Greek translation, as opposed to the Masoretic Hebrew text. And you know that because the, the word order is different. The ordering of the commands is different in the Greek Septuagint. I just thought that was interesting. The sixth and seventh commandments are switched. Do not commit adultery and do not murder. They're, so you know where Paul's quoting from. And I, I find it interesting that Paul quotes from the Septuagint, but in choosing and quoting the commandments that Paul did, clearly he's drawing us to one table of the law. He's, he's drawing our attention to the commandments that pertain to how we relate to one another. That's been the whole context since the beginning of Romans chapter 13, and I think it's important to note exactly what law the Apostle Paul's referring to. Um, because I think it helps us understand what he means by the statement that he says when we love somebody that we're fulfilling the law. And so in this context, we're fulfilling the law as it pertains to our relationships to other people. Because I want it to be clear in your mind what the Apostle Paul is not saying uh, just by using that language of fulfilling the law by loving others because he's not saying we fulfill the law in the same sense that Jesus says that he was going to fulfill the law, right? Because Jesus in Matthew 5, 17 said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So what did Jesus mean by saying he was going to fulfill the law? Well, Jesus uses this language to describe the fact that he is who, he is who all of the Old Testament uh, prophets, Moses and all the prophets, all of these scriptures that they wrote were pointing to him. The law of Moses, all of the prophets pointed and talked about this one and spoke of this one who is to come, and Jesus in his coming fulfilled all of that prophetic and typological um, scripture. Jesus also fulfilled the law in the sense that he kept it perfectly in its entirety his entire life. And so we do not fulfill the law at all in that sense. Um, you and I, we actually lost the ability to keep the law perfectly in its entirety the moment that we were conceived. The moment that we were conceived, we were imputed with Adam's sin nature and guilt and therefore are unable to fulfill the law in the sense that Jesus did. But that does bring us to the gospel. The good news is that by faith in Jesus Christ, his law-fulfilling perfect righteousness can be given to you for justification. You can be saved based on what Christ did by trusting in him. So when you think about our acts of love, even our acts of love are still tainted with sin and therefore 
are not fulfilling the law in its entirety as Jesus Christ was actually able to do. So when Paul says that we're fulfilling the law, definitely we're speaking of a different sense. Um, what Paul's saying is that if you are truly acting in love to, one of your, to a neighbor or to somebody else, um, by loving, you're really fulfilling, you're capturing the intent of all of the other laws that were given as they pertain to how we're to relate to one another. That's, that's what Paul is speaking of here. If you're truly acting in love towards your neighbor, you can be sure that you're not breaking all of the other commandments that God has given to you, how you relate to other people. And I think this is very important to note um, this relationship here that Paul is laying out for us between love and law. The relationship between love and law. Um, it's important because love and law are not at odds with each other. Love and law are not mutually exclusive. You actually can't have one without the other. You see, see how Paul's using this um, together because if you truly love your brother, you will not commit adultery against him with his wife. You'll be glad that he has his wife. If you love your brother, you will not murder him. You will actually uh, seek after his good and after his flourishing and after his life. If you truly love your brother, you will not steal from him. You will want to give to him. And if you truly love your neighbor, you will not covet his belongings. Instead, you'll rejoice that God has blessed him. You see how the law and love all work together? Because the commandments, which in the Ten Commandments, are all given in the negative sense as we relate to one another. So as all these commandments are given in the negative, really what they are is one big positive commandment to love. That's what the law was, one big positive commandment to love. That's why verse 10 says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. That's the connection. I hope you see the, the connection there Paul's laying uh, between loving and the law. Uh, to truly love is to fulfill the requirements of all the other laws. And conversely, you could also say to keep the requirements of God's law is how we truly love. You can, you can look at it both ways. Um, unfortunately, many, many uh, even professing believers have an unhealthy separation between the love of God and the law of God in their thinking. We just have to understand that God defines love. God defines what love is. It's not just an emotional whim or an emotional feeling that you get that determines what is love and what's not. God actually determines it. Um, we see this most obviously in the world when homosexuals, for instance, say that they're loving each other. Well, it may seem like love to them, it may feel like love to them, but unfortunately for them, that what they're deeming to be love is actually utterly contrary to God's standard of what love actually is. And God's standard of love is the only standard of true righteous love. There would actually be no such thing as love if it wasn't for God who's deemed it to be so. So, I think we see this kind of this disconnect even in the, the evangelical church at large, a disconnect between God's law for our relationships and how our relationships are to be actually loving. When husbands do not lead their wives as God's word 
commands them to, they're actually not loving their wives according to God's law. When wives don't submit to their husbands as God's law requires them, they're actually not loving their husbands as they should. The classical scriptural example of a false love is that of the man Eli in the Old Testament who failed to discipline his children and allowed them to continue in rampant sin. The Bible says that whoever spares the rod hates his son. You see, to not discipline our children is actually not to love them according to God's word. See, God defines our relationships. God defines how we're to love and how we're not to love. I actually had a quote from Pastor Emilio's sermon from last week. He said this, God may not put a limit on how much we may love. See, there is no limit to how much you may love. You are to love as much as you possibly can. He doesn't put a limit on it, but he does put a limit on how we are to love. You see, God tells us what is true love and what is not. Um, you can love all you want as long as you do it according to God's word. We, brothers and sisters, have the blessing, and it is a blessing. I, I, I feel like I say it a lot. I feel like I don't believe it as much as I should, but we have the blessing of having God's full revelation in God's word, where God doesn't just give us a mere concept of love. God doesn't just say love and then doesn't explain it. But no, in, in the word of God, we're given very detailed explanations of how it is that we are to love, what is true love. And I think God in his infinite wisdom has given us even a, a goes beyond that to give us a very helpful, um, a very helpful way to think about love. If you look at the end of verse 9, we're here. God summarizes the reality in a very helpful, all-encompassing fashion into how is it that we're to love people. It says that it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is helpful. God knows what he's doing because if, you, if you're wanting to, help, to love a brother, if you're wanting to love a sister, and you don't have time to read through the entirety of the Bible to try to figure out how it is that you should be loving them, God tells you here, it's, it's a very safe alternative in a sense, um, about how you can judge whether you're actually loving or if you can try to think of a way to love your brother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's how you should love other people. Love them as you love yourself. And of course, God's not promoting a narcissistic love for yourself. He's just stating the obvious. You do love yourself. You care about your needs. You care about your desires. God knows that. And he's saying, take that innate desire that you have, that care that you have for yourself, and turn that towards your neighbor. Turn that towards your brother or sister. And if you do that, um, I can assure you that your brother or sister will appreciate it. I think that's so helpful because I do hear all the time of brothers and sisters, even in the church, just sharing with me that uh, the frustration of they don't know how to serve, they don't know how to, what can I do to love a brothers and sisters? Well, this is a very helpful way to, to think about how it is that you can love a brother or sister because it is a God-given desire. If you have that desire in your heart to want to serve, just ask yourself the simple question, what would I really love for somebody to do for me? And you go do that for somebody else and go love your brother as you love yourself. This is a, this is a, uh, this is a huge command in the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
We've already looked at the quote. It's from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. But even as, even as I found it there, I said, this is a very obscure passage to be um, spoken of as the way that Jesus speaks of it, as the greatest commandment. Here it is in Leviticus 19, 18. But it's huge. Jesus quotes it. Paul quotes it. James quotes it. In fact, this text, you shall love your neighbor as, as yourself, is the single most quoted text from the Old Testament in the New Testament. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This, brothers and sisters, is biblical love. All of the principles um, that, that Paul is giving here for us on, in how to fulfill the law in loving our neighbor, uh, all of these truths and principles actually hold true um, for how you're to love God and how you're to love God by keeping his commands and how you're to worship him and, and obey him. The, all the principles hold true for how you're to love God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, when he was asked a question, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. But the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. So what Jesus is teaching is really that all of the, all of the other laws of God are really an exposition. They're really an expounding upon these two laws. Love God and love the neighbor. What a blessing that God not only instructs us again on, on just the great principle of love, but spells out for us the details of how to love rightly. And I think it's even a greater blessing that we've had displayed for us Jesus Christ, the greatest example of true love in that he laid down his very life for us. The ultimate act of love. An act of love that was actually a sacrifice. It was a sacrifice that would pay for the lack of love that each and every one of us have had for people before we became Christians. It's a, it's a sacrifice, an act of love that pays for every lack of love that we continue to have as Christians. It's an act of love and an act of sacrifice that we are forever indebted to. And because of what our Savior has done for us, we will love him and we will have a desire to be more like him. He is our king and we want to submit to him and his great commandments are to love. And so let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark as those who... The, the millions, Lord, the millions who are born and live and die and are without hope, without God in the world, who are strangers from the covenants of promise. Father, who are we? Who are we that you have revealed yourself in such a way, to such an extent, that we have your full revelation given to us in the coming of Christ and in the, the writing of your scriptures, Lord? Help us to love, Lord. Help us to be known as those who love. Let our church be a place, God. Help us to be a place that when people come, they recognize that truly we are the children of God, that truly we are Christians by our love for one another.
God, we, we need your help, Lord. We can do none of these things in and of ourselves. Lord, so we pray for your spirit to enable us. We pray for the sanctification of our church as a whole. God, please bless this place. In Jesus' name, amen.